You know, sometimes there are specific words that bring visual memories to mind, aren't there? This, was, this is the case for me. The last couple of weeks, as I've been reflecting on the passage that will be in a few minutes, the word surrender was the dominant word. And surrender brought this visual image. Look on screen. See if this is the same for you. When you hear the word surrender, is this the kind of thing that, that comes to your mind? Because our history books, right, documentaries, we don't, hear the, we don't use the word surrender maybe a lot, but, but in this case, it's such a positive, right? The, the, the context is great news, literally life-changing news for the world. But how often, can we be honest, is the word surrender actually a positive? How often is surrender a positive? Think about it. I don't have to think long to tell you almost never in my life. I cannot think of many things that I have surrendered that felt like a very positive moment. Eight years ago, I was sitting on a stone in in, in just a pile of rubble, basically, with some friends that I'd traveled with to the Middle East. We were in Israel, and we were sitting at the ancient archaeological site of Caesarea Philippi. Nearby us, off to the left, there was a a temple ruin. And this temple was dedicated to the Greco-Roman god, small g, Pan. Pan was a god of fertility and, frankly, sexual deviance. People would come to this temple and they they would seek the blessing of the gods for their crops, for instance, that they would be fertile. The ground would be fertile. They, they, they would come hungering for growth in their family. Maybe they were childless or maybe they just wanted to see their family grow. And they would come to this temple believing that if they sacrificed here, the gods would be appeased. And maybe, in fact, what would happen was they would see the growth they were longing for. The Roman historian Josephus reported that at this temple, which you'll see on screen from an artist's rendering, was a pretty good-sized complex with various structures. And you'll notice off to the right in the drawing, there's almost a dark hole. Excuse me, to the left, there's a dark hole behind that long building. Well, you were looking at that hole in that photograph on the left. This was a grotto. Josephus reports that this grotto, an underwater underground cave, was so deep the bottom had never been able to be reached by any means. Animals and children would be sacrificed in that grotto. They would be thrown into the water, believing if they sank and did not come back to the surface, the gods would be appeased and their desire for whatever they were asking in in terms of fertility would be met. Thus, Jesus' reference, which we are about to read, was not some metaphor. It was not hypothetical. This is a literal place. This place, this grotto, is known as the gate to hell. The gate to Hades. Jewish rabbis at the time, they taught that no good Jew would ever get anywhere near that location. They would have nothing to do with any people near that location. And yet, where do we find Jesus and his men in this passage we're about to read? Sitting maybe on the very stones that my friends and I were sitting on. 
within eyesight of a couple hundred yards of the Temple of Pan, which would have been crazy busy in his day. He had taken them, in fact, to the very nearby gates of Hades. This becomes a key moment in the life of Peter, which is what this message today is. Key moments in a life. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read God's word from Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18, and then 21 to 26. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, and others they say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jump down to 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed, and on the third day he would be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to say to him, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any one of you would come after me, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? This is the word of God. Please be seated. For three years, Christ has increasingly been revealing himself to his disciples. They had had seen the miracles. They had heard his teaching. They had listened to his preaching. They themselves, by this point, had participated in some of the miracles. They themselves had preached the good news of the kingdom. And here in this place, and in this moment, Jesus decides it's quiz time. So, guys, who do people say that I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter pushes all of the chips onto his theological table in verse 16. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And what follows, we know, is this this affirmation of Peter from Jesus. This promise. Can you imagine Jesus looking him in the eyes and making this promise of this unique role Peter will play as the rock? The very one that this community, and in fact all communities of Christian faith all time, have been built upon. This gathering we call the church. Upon him it would be established. What a moment it must have been, right? It's a familiar story, but come back into it. The man that you have recognized as Messiah has just looked you in the eye. 
and said, you, Peter, it's you. Now, what do we see? In a very short period of time later, Matthew picks up the story. And, and, and Peter is responding to Jesus' teaching about suffering and death that he would soon endure. Pe- Peter's, <clears throat> excuse me, Peter's key moment moves from affirmation to something completely else. Matthew describes the scene as Peter rebukes Jesus in verse 22. Rebuke. I don't know how often you use that word. Not very commonly, but we all know the weight of it. 77 times in scripture, this word rebuke gets used. At its core, rebuke means to chop down, to clear away brush, things that should not be there. It's a term that's filled with derision and reprimand and usually shame. Peter rebukes Jesus. Oops. Peter goes from being the foundational rock a few verses earlier to getting rocked to his foundation when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And it is a command, for he is declaring in that moment, Peter, you are the enemy of God's righteous rule and reign. Mm, Not a good day. Hi, honey, how'd your day go? Well, except for the Lord of the universe called me Satan. Not bad. (laughs) Jesus rebukes Peter. But here's the thing. Did you see? It said Peter pulled Jesus aside to do it. Credit where credit is due. (laughs) Limited credit, but we're going to give him the credit for that. But what does Jesus do? He turns to the disciples, which means they're within earshot They weren't far away. They probably heard all that just went on. And he says in view of them and everyone else, really, you guys aren't so innocent yourselves. It is time to deny yourselves. It is time to take up your cross. Gaining life means losing your self-driven life. What is this world worth to you? That's the question he asks. What's it worth? Is it worth your soul? What will you surrender is the heart of what Jesus is asking. What will you surrender? Jesus gives a directive to his followers, and I believe to us. Hey, we're going to move toward the cross as I am moving toward the cross, Jesus says. We all have daily crosses If you follow me, you need to pick your cross up because as you move toward the cross and lift your crosses, you move toward me. That is what Jesus is telling them. I think it's worth noting, Peter takes the rebuke from Jesus. The text is quiet. And I think, if I can read between some lines... I suspect he reflected on this deeply for quite a while. Life and death for Jesus was coming. Arrest in very short order. Before Pentecost, that time of waiting. I think Peter probably reflected on this key moment in his life many times over many days. I've reflected on one in my life. I I, I remember a rebuke I got from the Lord in my life. 
was all about discerning my call to vocational ministry. For those of you who don't know my story, um, I was minding my own business, having a good time. Um, And I was being faithfully serving God in a bunch of different ways. At least I believe it was mostly faithful. Some folks came to me. I, I would describe myself at the time as being a Christian who was good for nothing. And that was a positive because I wasn't a drain on the treasury. I was involved in ministry. God was using me in a bunch of ways for, for global ministry things. And I had, my, I had a small business. And between those two things, one paid for the other. I loved serving in that way. Some leaders came to me and said, Scott, I, I, we think God's doing something in your life that you need to pay more close attention to. Would you take some time and retreat and think about this? Reflect upon it. Pray into it. I said, sure, because that's what we're supposed to say, right? (laughs) What's the choice? There's no choice. So that's what you say. Sure. Over the course of a short period of time, particularly on one day, I remember I was at Lacey Park, and it was as if God broke me over his knee. He rebuked me. Because the story had gone like this as I, as I prayed into this. Well, um, God, you know this thing we've been doing together, this, this 50-50 bivocational life, my, my small business, which I love, which, which is working, paying for bills, my, my, my time given for the kingdom, especially seeing the kingdom expand amongst the almost 3 billion people who today still have no gospel witness of their own people among them. And, and, and I was seeing flourishing in that kind of ministry. God, we got this. This is working. You and I, we are in step. Way to go, God. We got this. So why would we change? But during that solitude retreat, he spoke to me. Not in an audible voice, although I have had that experience, and maybe that's a story for another time. But he spoke really clearly internally to me. And he said, Scott, will you surrender your plan Would you yield to mine if, in fact, I want to use you differently? Scott, surrender is your choice. I'm a loving father. I'm a purposeful one with a sovereign plan, and you don't know it yet, and you don't want to understand it. But that's what you'll be choosing to walk away from. Do you believe I have this deep, purposeful love for you? Or not. But hey Scott. Your call. That was a rebuke. I'm glad I had ears to hear. Throughout Peter's life. There are key moments of surrender. And I think if you've been following Jesus. For any period of time. You know them. But I want to highlight just a few. Because this key moment fits in a series of key moments. I'll throw them on screen for you. Key moments in Peter's life. And really quickly. John 1, 42. This is when Jesus first meets him on a beach. He says, you are called this. You will be called this. It's this prophetic promise that upon you, we just heard, I'll build my church. That's the beginning of that promise. You are now. You will be. Luke 5, 8 to 10. This is all about vocational humility. He had to surrender his name in that first meeting. Oh yeah, Simon, nice name. I'm going to call you Peter. Wait, what? <laughs> now he's, he's, he's lost some identity. Now he's giving up vocation. Vocational humility. I called it that because this is the scene where G, at nighttime, no fish had been caught, right? And, and Jesus is on the shore, the carpenter's kid. Carpentry, fishing, not usually connected. And he says, hey guys, throw the net on the other side. And Peter goes, okay, let's humor the rabbi. 
And what happens, you get all the fish, right? We know that story. That meant vocational humility. He had to surrender a big part of how he knew his life would go vocationally. Things were changing. Matthew 14, 22 through 33. This is all about trust that goes way beyond understanding. This is the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the storm. You know the story. Peter gets out of the boat. What is he surrendering in that moment, Scott? He's surrendering every known physical law of the universe. Think about that. We talk about the walk on the water thing. In that moment, it's as if we all decided right now we could float to the roof. He surrendered his understanding of the physical laws of the universe. John 13, 1 to 17. This is his leadership reorientation. This is when they're up there in the room and they're talking about who's the greatest amongst us. And Jesus begins washing feet and says, no, Rabbi, I should be washing yours. And he says, no, Peter, and man, you don't get it. First, you got to kneel before you can stand. That's how leadership in my kingdom works. It's an upside down kingdom. We're going to do it the other way. And then in Acts 10 and Acts 15, these key moments where Peter comes to grips with the fullness of the gospel is in Christ. It's not in religiosity. Acts 10 and 15, these are wrestling moments for Peter. Acts 10, it's, wait a minute, Gentiles are coming to faith? They aren't part of our tribe. They aren't part of our group. Wait, they're part of the promise? Yes, because back, way back in Isaiah 49, 6, it said, hey, Israel is too small a thing that just you, the tribes of Israel, would be for me. I have made you a light to all the peoples. And he's having to come to grips with that. The rules have changed. It's about spiritual life, not religiosity. He had to set bias and prejudice behind. Religious rules set aside and embrace life in the spirit. That's a lot of surrendering in Peter's life already. Peter, who would in fact soon become the leader of the church. The early church. And here's an uncomfortable truth though of leadership. Whether it's in a church or whether it's in business or in school sometimes we really begin to believe that we are central to the success of all the efforts and so what happens is we begin to kind of push back we 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 can become quick to act and very slow to reflect or am i the only one pastors spiritual leaders we are not immune to this It is too often my story. I act instead of reflect. I have some friends who often riffing on that first spiritual law of Campus Crusade, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, would often tell people as a warning, hey, careful, Scott loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And it probably is going to involve like Timbuktu. (laughs) When we choose self-directed action first instead of God-directed surrender... Through and by reflectively yielding, we have chosen poorly, church. And maybe even dangerously. Does that ring true to anybody else here besides me? When we react quickly instead of reflectively, it often ends up not just poorly, but dangerously. In this regard, I I like a thing I heard by a pastor named Tish 
Warren Harrison in a conversation earlier this year. She said, the space between an event and your response is where wisdom grows. I better say that again. The space between an event and your response is where wisdom grows. When we choose self-directed action first instead of God-directed surrender and reflective yielding, we've just chosen poorly. Can we just admit it? But when we surrender to Christ and the way of Jesus, that's the antidote, the antidote to our default of self-sufficiency. And to be honest, we all wrestle with self-sufficiency. And friends... I think we, in our American context, we wrestle with self-sufficiency much more than our global believing family. You know why? Some of our members can tell you why. Because they come from those places. Our American story is one of self-sufficiency and independence. And sometimes that great and profound cultural strength of ours, in fact, becomes our great weakness. And often it's been true of us even here. Big C Church, wherever it exists, and here this little C Lake Avenue Church. Self-sufficiency and independence replacing in part or in full God's sufficiency and our shared interdependence. God made us to be a body. We are to be interdependent with him and one another. Self-sufficiency, that's the opposite of surrender and yielding. And it's not new. It's humanity's ancient error. Humans chose this way of life. If you're newer to exploring who Jesus is, grab grab a Bible and go or Google a Bible and go to Genesis 1 to 11. And friends, if you haven't read it for a while, just go back and reread it. It's all about self-sufficiency. It's this unfolding story of I got this versus he's got this. I was looking up Antonyms, opposites of surrender. Merriam-Webster gave me this list. Listen to these words. With surrender in mind, listen to the opposites. To seize, to conceal, to suppress, to remove, to hold back, to claim, to pursue, to demand. All of these adjectives, every single one are focused on my agency, right? My taking action, My making decisions for me and for mine, they are not other-focused. My action, my agency becomes central. So in thinking about surrender, I've come to believe that in almost every circumstance, recognition precedes surrender. Let me say it again, that recognition precedes surrender. Seeing things as they are, understanding, facing reality, being honest with yourself and with others, whether you like it or not. All of this is required before we will choose to surrender or yield. Because there is surrendering, like those headlines, there is surrendering that can be forced upon others and upon me. But before we choose to surrender or yield, we first must recognize the situation and the context. Pastor Fred Renich wrote a biography of Peter, and in it he makes this observation. Trying to obey a God 
whom you don't trust and therefore don't love is like a reluctant child going through the motions of pleasing a father whom they dread. Their heart's not in it. And as soon as they are out from under the father's pressure, they will turn to things to please themselves. Doesn't that ring true? It does to me. From the key moment of a prophecy on a beach where, where Jesus says, I'm going to change your name and it's going to signal something really big. You don't understand it yet, Peter. To Matthew 16's moment, to all the future moments in Peter's life. This three-year journey is an ongoing process of yielding. And the result is a product, a surrendered life. And as for you and I, like Peter, the question becomes, are we going to build on a lifetime of continued surrender that results in increasing obedience to God or not? Because surrender results in increasing obedience to God. If you're like me, words like promises, vows, even surrender or dedication come easily sometimes. But can we also be honest and say that those things we have done do not assure loyalty to Christ or his purposes when pressure comes? It's an uncomfortable truth. We've seen it in Peter's life. Shoot, it was only a little bit after this. He denies Jesus, right? After some really good vows and declarations. We've seen it in our own lives. We've seen it in other Jesus followers. When ourselves, when our self is threatened, we are so easily shaken. Friends, and hear this carefully. Believing in the right doctrines of the Bible is not enough. Knowing a verse or quote, a passage to quote, it's not enough. These are the key baselines. Yeah, absolutely. But they're not enough. Or else why does Scott retreat to self-sufficiency when I know these things? And why do we retreat to our self-sufficiency? Whether it's from arrogance maybe or fear and both of which of those I would be quick to add over the last couple years of pandemic and political season, too often we have chosen fear and arrogance. Surrender. Yielded reflection. It is through experience with Jesus It is listening to Jesus. It's learning from Jesus. It's walking with Jesus that we learn to yield and surrender more of who I am. So that like Peter, we might be more of whom God intends us to be. Individually and as a church and as his disciple-making movement worldwide. And friends, the world is crying out for a disciple-making movement as is his church. Through, from, with, to, daily, we learn to yield and surrender more of who we are to him. So let me put it as plainly and bluntly as I can on the screen. What do you need to surrender? 
What do you need to surrender? We saw in Peter, he had to surrender his expectations of Jesus. He had these political assumptions about him and his coming kingdom. Maybe the end of the oppressor Romans. I I don't know. But whatever it was, he had to surrender those expectations of Jesus. Because Jesus was doing something different in his life and in this world than he had expected. It looked different. It made him uncomfortable. And he had to surrender that. Peter had to surrender his personal preferences. This whole first will be last thing, Jesus? That, that moving up begins by going down? When has that ever worked? Where have you ever seen that model, Jesus? He had to surrender his personal preferences. He had to surrender his organizational preference, preferences. Think about these disciples he's hanging out with, one of whom was about to betray them, betray Jesus and ultimately that therefore them. Versus this mighty movement he had begun to expect because Messiah means anointed one. He is coming to do a great thing. He had to let go of his organizational preferences. He had to surrender his cultural biases and preferences. Wait, we're going to be hanging out with pagans now? Wait, what? And I'm going to be eating, huh? Wait, wait, what? Shellfish is now in my diet? How is that? He had to surrender a whole lot of prejudice. He had to surrender religious routines and religious preferences because it became about spiritual life, not religiosity. Loving action, not rote repetition and exclusionary practices. Man, that must have been a lot of surrender. Church, what do you need to surrender? I want to wrap up using a a common item that represents control in our lives in many ways. It represents bigger things. And as I focused on this theme around surrender and and, and key moments in Peter's life, I want to literally look at some keys to bring this closer to home. So I'm going to invite you. If you've got your keys with you, would you grab your keys? Just put them in your hand. No, you aren't going to give them to anyone. So all of you who just saw somebody who you know owns a Porsche 911 and thought, I'm going to go sit next to that guy right now, just in case Scott makes us hand our keys to somebody. I want you just to hold those keys in your hand. I'm going to talk to you about my keys. So this one is my house key. You can't see it, but it's got a very cool Dodger logo painted on it. My house key. What would it mean to surrender my house key? Well, my home is a place of respite. It's a place of peace and recovery. And I know that is not true for everyone sitting in this room or listening online. I know that is not true necessarily of your home. But that key represents this place where we spend a fair amount of our time. That we have ideas about what home life should be like. Maybe our home life should look a little differently. I don't know. 
I'm going to put that one aside. This one is one of those car fob things. You know, we used to have keys. Uh, now many cars have these electronic fobs. My car, it represents, in one word, independence. Friday, it was a beautiful day. I went down to Manhattan Beach, enjoyed the beach all day on my day off. I couldn't have done that without my car. Need to run an errand. Nancy says, Scott, could you go get some such and such? She hates errands. Sorry, babe, just calling you out. It's the truth. So I'll go, sure. I hop in the car and go get it. Because this represents independence. I heard a story just very recently about someone who heard about somebody else who had a need for wheels because of their life circumstance and they didn't have them and it was have a scatter on in their life in all sorts of ways and they're affecting their family and this person just gave their car key to this other person. They surrendered their car. Um, Oh, this one's special. This one, this is a key to a second home. And no, we do not have a second home. But we have some friends who do. And once or twice a year, they would invite us just to use their place, to get away. And they finally, a couple years ago, said, hey, you should just have a key. And so they gave us a key to their second home. I got to tell you, I love getting away. I wonder if God would ever call me to surrender that. Would he ever call me to surrender this key? Because I don't want to give it up. I do not want to give this one up. I'll take the bus all day long, the gold line. I don't want to give this one up. Oh, here's one. This one is for the front door of our business. We own a small store in town. This one opens that door. I'm really proud of my wife's business. It was for what she does in the art world, was selected a few years ago as one of the top 100 stores in all of North America for what they do. We are very proud of this small business. It provides for us and other people. This is working. And then a pandemic comes, and it gets shut down. And we don't know what the future holds. And God says, are you willing to hold that key Loosely, could I possibly provide for you in a different way? Could you surrender that key, Scott? Honestly, Scott doesn't know the answer to that question. And last but not least, this right here is my church key. Not the one that opens bottles. Now, at Lake here, we have many church keys. This one happens to open almost every door on the campus. That makes it a very special key. Not all of my colleagues have the same key that I do. What if God is asking me to surrender the way that I hold my church key and use my church key? Because this is a control item, as they all are. What might be asking me to surrender? How do these keys line up to key moments and what God wants to do in your life, in my life, in our church's life?
I want you to keep holding those keys. Last week, Pastor Janine ended our time in a short practice of what's called listening prayer. Now, listening prayer is like it sounds. It's not talking prayer. It's not speaking prayer. It's listening prayer. Believing that there are times that Jesus might want to say something really particular to us at any given moment. So we've got to listen. So we're going to wrap up our service with some listening. With your keys in your hand, would you bow your head with me? We're going to have two different short sessions, just a couple minutes each. Jesus, your children are listening. Jesus, is there anything you want to say to us individually about surrender? Are there any of these keys that I need to give back to you because I've gotten confused about regarding whose they truly are, whose they belong to, what doors they open, what doors they keep shut? Is there anything that you want to speak to me about regarding surrender? Let's listen. Now, Jesus, is there anything you want to say to us about surrender in regards to our church? Is there anything you want to say to me personally about surrender and my place as a member in this church? As an elected leader in this church? As a class or small group leader in this church? Is there anything you want to say to me about surrender, moving from cyberspace to a more active engagement in this church? Are there things you're inviting me to take hold of? Are there things you're inviting me to let go of? What would you say to me? What is it that I might need to surrender? Jesus, your children are listening. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be? For someone, if they gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul. Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Father, as we surrender to you today, help us to live this day and the next and all that follow to the full in you. Jesus, we choose to surrender to your voice. Because it brings peace. It brings a burden that we could actually carry. It brings a life lived in abundance. So we surrender to you today anew. Help us to live this day and the next and all that follow to the full in you. And spirit, we surrender to your small voice. The one that leads us to wisdom and discernment. Boldness and gentleness. Acknowledging That to ignore your voice brings far greater danger and risk than obeying it ever will. Spirit, help us to live this day and the next and all that follow to the full in you. Amen.